0: Ashley, here at Airmail, we are fully entrenched in our hometown of New York City. And our downtown neighbors, the good people at David Yeerman, have devised a clever way to celebrate it.
1: David Yerman's holiday campaign, Magical Menagerie, is all about the beauty of Central Park and how at night it transforms into an enchanted landscape where snowflakes turn into jeweled treasures.
0: If you've never walked around Central Park during the holiday season, you're missing out. There's nothing quite like it.
1: And the same could be said of a holiday gift from David Yurman. I've been coveting the Tree of Life amulet, which is a beautiful way to incorporate a bit of nature into your jewelry box. At $250, it makes a beautiful gift.
0: As part of the brand's continued commitment to supporting its local community, David Yurman will donate 20% of the purchase price from a limited edition Tree of Life amulet sold in select New York area David Yurman stores and on davidyurman.com, benefiting the Central Park Conservancy which is entirely responsible for the care of the park.
1: Happy Saturday. It's December 18th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker.
0: And I'm Michael Haney.
1: And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail.
0: Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, Michael, how times have changed since our holiday party on Monday night. I mean, it seems like just yesterday that we were hanging out outside at the Waverly Inn, greeting colleagues new and old, having a marvelous merry time, and now this Omnicon variant has arrived.
0: Yeah, it's like, uh, boy... Every time you sort of wake up, uh, things shift again, right?
1: Yes. I was at Radio City last night to see the Rockettes, probably against my better judgment, but we have a family friend who is a Rockette this year for the first time, and it's very exciting. So we went, and, you know mask compliance there was relatively low and now i'm a little bit you know omnicon vigilant like everybody else in town but the show and the holiday must go on
0: to be optimistic and we need to be vigilant and i think we've been through the drill you're going to want to gather, gather this holiday but just be wise about how you're doing it
1: totally i just ordered a fresh set of masks from my girl heather taylor out in la What's up, Heather? We're just getting ready for the new normal. That's what this is. So here we go, Michael. Stay safe, stay healthy, mask up, take your vitamins, and continue to drink that wine and uh, enjoy the holiday spirit.
0: Speaking of holiday spirit...
1: On a better note, I know I know that we're tempted to hunker down and go into full-on isolationist mode, but... Okay, I just need your hit list of, like, five things you have to do in New York during the holidays. Go. <laughs>
0: Avoid crowds. Remember to be patient with people who stop in the middle of the street, i.e. tourists who just don't seem to have any sense of rules of the road. Take a long walk around the neighborhood and check out the decorations and the lights. We like to go up to... Cafe Sabarsky in the Neu Museum and have a little strudel, Mitschlag, best strudel up in the city. Apple strudel feels like you're transported to Vienna whenever you go up there after you take a long walk through Central Park. And finally, we like to go over to Washington Square Park where they just lit the tree last week under the arch. It's a beautiful little, any night, nice little sight down there. And you, my dear?
1: Well, Michael, you know, everything about me revolves around food. Okay. Lunch at Union Square Cafe, best holiday lunch in the city, dinner at the Waverly Inn, coziest. And I'm not just saying that because my boss owns it. It really is the coziest little room. Now I haven't even been able to get a reservation there despite having dear Jacob from our office do his best. So good luck to everyone else. Wish we could be helpful. We can't, but it is, I think the best place in the city for a really great holiday meal. I go to the Nutcracker every year. I can't help it. I have kids like these guys got to see it. It's so fun. That's another essential. Find a caroling party. I have my own personal favorite. Just went last night. In fact, I got my harmonizing on. It was very exciting. Final one, quality time in Central Park. It's so romantic, ideally on a snowy day or night, but just walk around, hit up the reservoir, do the poet's walk, whatever you've got to do. And you know what? If you go into the plaza and have tea, like we don't judge you for that. It's still fun. Go for it.
0: But that's why I'm telling you, that's why you go to Cafe Sabarsky, get some apple strudel, Mitch Schlag, and some hot chocolate if you want it, or a great Viennese coffee. I promise you, it's the perfect ending to it. Speaking of the Christmas spirit, some people might be thinking, have yourselves a merry little Christmas. They're in the holiday spirit. But we have a holiday treat in this week's issue, which you might call, have yourself a Larry little Christmas, right?
1: LD is all I really want for Christmas anyway, so if you haven't already subscribed to Airmail, this is a reason to do so. You've got original content from the one and only LD, and it's hysterical.
0: LD being Larry David. We have Larry David writing this week about the holiday spirit.
1: Right? We do. And for all of our listeners, we did invite Larry to come on the podcast. He doesn't do many podcasts, probably no podcasts, So for good reason. He's busy and he's got other things to do, but we are here for you and we love him just as much as you do, if not more. But look, you can read him and reading him is actually better than hearing from him because you can hear from him on his show. So anyway... Check out this story. It's hysterical. Michael, what's your favorite
0: part? Well, we asked Larry, we said, listen, what do you think about the holidays? And of course, Larry wrote, he said, and after years of being invited to holiday parties and sing-alongs and all this stuff, he actually succeeded. So there's all the faux bohomie and the nonsensical holiday spirit. And he said, the barrage of Merry Christmas. And he said, then it finally happened. I was alone on Christmas Day and it was his like dream come true. So he riffs off of that. He was free from all the obligations that he felt, right?
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the things we love the most about him. Like, is there any more, is there anyone who's freer right now in the public eye like than Larry David? I mean, he has this incredible agency, not only over his own work, but also over his own life. It's just such a treat to have him in Airmail this week. And we want to thank Larry for gracing us with his gift of writing.
0: Thank you, Uncle Larry.
1: Love you, Uncle Larry. By the way, all I want for Christmas is like to spend it with LD.
0: Well, maybe it'll show up under your tree. You never
1: know. I think at the very least I need a Larry David ornament. I'm sure someone makes those.
0: That'll be a pretty, pretty nice Christmas morning.
1: Pretty, pretty good.
0: What's one of your favorite holiday movies, Ashley?
1: Are you going to get me going on Love Actually?
0: I am going to get you going on Love Actually because, I, look... I love this movie, and we've got a great guest on this week. We have Sam Kashner, who delved, dove into the making of this with the romantic comedy king, Richard Curtis, who wrote and directed Love Actually. And he's got the sort of fascinating inside story of how the film came to be and some sort of secrets inside the writing of it and all the different layers of stories, right? Let's take a moment to talk about the holidays. Have you been naughty or nice?
1: A little bit of both, but I'm crossing my fingers that I'm still in Santa's good graces. I have my eye on the new North Star pendant from David Yerman. It's such a great modern take on the traditional birthstone necklace.
0: It's a good one. And as part of the brand's continued commitment to supporting its local community, David Yurman will donate 20% of the purchase price from select North Star designs sold at David Yurman Retail Stores and davidyerman.com to the Robin Hood Foundation from now through the end of 2021.
1: That's romance. There's a full assortment of great gift ideas on davidyerman.com. One of the things we love about the brand is that it's a New York institution founded by two artists, David and his wife, Sybil, and now they're working with their son, Evan.
0: It's a family affair, David Yerman. And don't forget to check out the brand's 2021 holiday campaign, Magical Menagerie, which celebrates the artistic creativity and the beauty of a gift. It also highlights New York City's iconic Central Park on a winter's night when it's transformed into an enchanted landscape where snowflakes turn into jeweled treasures.
1: All right. So Michael, we've got a special guest here today to talk about not only one of the best holiday movies, but one of the best movies of all time. That's right. Love actually. And, Sam Kashner has spent some time with filmmaker Richard Curtis and gotten the full story on what happened behind the scenes. Now, Sam is an expert on many things. He is the author of a memoir, When I Was Cool. He's the author of Sinatra Land, and he's also co-authored an incredible book on Mike Nichols, Life Isn't Everything, Mike Nichols, as remembered by 150 of his closest friends. He did that one along with our colleague and friend, Ash Carter. So Sam, we're thrilled to have you not only as a writer for Airmail, but as a guest on Morning Meeting. Welcome. Thank
2: you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm a fan of your Saturdays. The only one I won't be listening to is this one, actually. But thanks, and good to see you, talk to you, hear your voices.
0: I just want to jump in for listeners. Sam is actually very enthusiastic about Love Actually as we all are. He's a little slow to warm to it.
2: I meant just because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. That's the only reason I would miss this. It's a wonderful film, and I'm a big fan of the director, Richard Curtis. His partner, Emma Freud, who had quite a bit to do with making the film as terrific as it is. She is, in fact, responsible for the wonderful sort of Heathrow Airport ending and the filming of all the comings and goings that you see there. They spent days at the airport filming all that with a little sort of hidden black box. And so they're both delightful people and they made a wonderful film, which has become a sort of, pardon the jargon, but a kind of staple of the Christmas film, even though it wasn't Curtis's intention to even have Christmas be in the movie.
1: Um, Richard Curtis has made, I think he's probably my favorite living filmmaker. I mean, we're talking about the guy behind Bridget Jones. Okay, like that's really all you need to know. Tell us a little bit about how Richard Curtis arrived at this sort of holiday film idea and what makes this unusual storyline kind of come together.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think beginning in 94, he made four weddings and a funeral, followed by Bean, his great collaborator. Was uh, Rowan Atkinson, and then Notting Hill, and then Bridget Jones' Diary, and then in 2003, Love Actually. So, I mean, it was an extraordinary string of success. And so he had written these three romantic comedies. And when I went to see him, he and his family were spending a year or so in, in Los Angeles. And so he was, he was considering a fourth film. And he had apparently two ideas one was the Hugh Grant story of the prime minister and the American visiting American president and so on. And the other was the Colin Firth story, which I don't know how well people remember that. But Firth was the writer of crime novels, jilted by his girlfriend and goes to the French countryside to sort of lick his wounds and he falls in love with the Portuguese maid. So those were the two stories. But then in the back of his mind, he was thinking about Shortcuts, the Robert Altman film which is a sort of series of these sort of Raymond Carver vignettes. And he was a big fan of Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and even a film that's kind of forgotten now, which is Paul Oster wrote and directed a film called Smoke, which also had a series of stories. And so, as Richard said, I got kind of greedy and thought, why not have nine or, or ten, actually, began as ten sort of storylines And it was only the idea of sort of the days leading up to Christmas. This was just a kind of device to sort of help him kind of thread the needle. And that became the engine that was sort of purring under all of these stories. And that's really how it started. I mean, he was recuperating, I think, from surgery, from back surgery. So he couldn't sit at a keyboard easily and sort of type the movie. He was beginning to rehabilitate himself by taking like a series of walks. And he was thinking to himself, I think the germ of the idea was he was thinking, what if you only wrote the five best scenes in a movie instead of... Bothering with exposition and introducing characters and and seeing what happens to them one day after the next. That's sort of how it started. So it's a very kind of unique thing, at least for a film where you have so many, it was originally ten and then nine storylines for the viewer to follow. It's also why it's a bit of a long film. I think it kind of clocks in at somewhere like two and a half hours, you know? It's very incredibly lively and sort of propulsive, really. I mean, you don't notice the time, certainly.
0: I love how you're contextualizing it, because it seems as a light, fluffy rom-com, and yet, as you've just revealed there's so much inventiveness inside of it there's so much pieces he's inspired by so it just goes to show you how difficult it is to make something that is light and comic and also hits all the right emotional notes
2: well absolutely well i mean the film begins with a voiceover about 9 11 so this is not gloomy but it kind of reminded me of I remember I was in a film society and in school, and what got me kind of tossed out of the, excommunicated from this film group was that I suggested running It's a Wonderful Life backwards. So by the end of the movie, he's thinking of killing himself around the holidays, which just seems so much more realistic to me. So instead, this film kind of begins with this kind of rather somber intonation, but it's a souffle, but there's a diamond ring at the bottom of it.
1: Also, one of the reasons that the movie so beloved is the cast, right? I mean, you've got everyone from Hugh Grant to Bill Nye to Laura Linney in this movie. How did Richard Curtis go about getting all these stars on board? And was there any internal competition or workings or tales from the set that you can share with us?
2: Well, part of the delight now in seeing the film is they weren't all that well-known then. That's what's kind of great about the whole thing. Hugh Grant obviously being the exception, but the body double scene, Martin Freeman, for example, this was before Lord of The Rings, I think before, way before Sherlock Holmes fame, January Jones, it was a long time before Mad Men. So it wasn't as hard as we would think. Laura Linney, he was kind of crazy about her, but she also was not as far along in her career. At this point, it becomes kind of a pleasure just to sort of see these people, these faces that we know so well. But back then, it wasn't the case. Emma Thompson, she made the tall guy with, she'd only done kind of comedy sketches before that. Richard said that within moments of her being on the set in this film, he could tell she was the sublime movie actress.
0: Even the kid who plays the young boy.
2: Thomas Sangster, right? Yes, I mean, this is before Game of Thrones. Of course, it enshrines for everyone how what a marvelous actor Alan Rickman was. I mean, American audiences kind of fell for him in that film. And this was Kira Knightley had not made Pirates of the Caribbean. In fact, Curtis said it's one of the things that he does admire about the film now is that there are people who sort of would go on to movie stardom And he said it does change the film somewhat to see that now, but he's still proud of the movie as well should be. Liam Neeson as well. So we kind of take most of these actors now sort of for granted in that way, but they were much less well-known to us 18 years ago. The one thing I thought was sort of interesting is January Jones, she plays the part of this young Midwestern American. But what was kind of fun about that is it's the only scene or story in which Curtis allowed an actor to improvise because she had her dialogue and she just said, well an American girl just wouldn't sound like this. And she started to improvise on her own. And someone speaking for Richard Curtis came over to her and said, we don't improvise on Richard's movies. He's a writer. He wrote this. This is the way it is. And when Richard Curtis visited her in her trailer later, she thought it was to hear that she had been fired. And he said, well, I, I'm not an American girl. I don't know how to write that character. So she really I ad- lived it kind of magnificently. And that was a surprise to me.
1: Sam love actually came out in 2003 if my math is correct that's 18 years ago people watching this movie now more than ever why do you think it has such staying power
2: that is a terribly good question I think because it's a hopeful movie really I mean Emma Thompson's kind of suffering in silence character aside, I do think it's a hopeful movie. It's unabashed in its kind of tenderness and its romanticism and its sort of bodiness. And as long as people want to fall in love or are recovering from a broken heart, I think the movie will be important to people. I think everyone has their kind of meeting cute and breaking up bitterly Stories. And I think, like most of Curtis's films, there's something just sort of deeply true about the characters. And the one storyline that he killed off involved his longtime collaborator, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, who was supposed to play an angel in the film. And I think Richard felt that was just a bridge too far. And it also gave a kind of unreality to the film. He didn't want any sort of magic realism or anything that fanciful. He wanted to keep it as kind of authentic as possible. So he got rid of that storyline. I mean, Atkinson still has this small part and significant part in the film, but he did away with it for that reason.
0: I'm curious, Sam... And Ashley, let's start with you, Sam. Is there a storyline in the film that plucks your heartstrings or gets you a little choked up?
2: Yes, I think it's actually it's Laura Linney's story, really. She plays the story of Sarah who has this kind of impossible, endless crush on a colleague. In fact, Richard Curtis didn't want to cast this fellow in the role as the most handsome man in the world. Or something. And she's going to have her romantic evening at last. It's interrupted by a phone call from her brother who was institutionalized. And it's Christmas Eve and he misses and needs his sister. And actually, it's the one somewhat autobiographical story in Love Actually. Curtis's sister was ill and the fact that she had to sort of make that choice. And I didn't know that when I went to see them, that that in fact was in a way an autobiographical event from his own life rooted in in biography. But to me, it, it was very moving and seemed very real and relatable. Let's say that, Do you know. What about for yourselves?
1: I think it's up there among my top five favorite holiday movies. Sam is a student of cinema and a chronicler of it. What is your all-time favorite holiday movie? And where does love actually fall in the mix?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, back in the day, I did do a story about the making of a Christmas story, Fragile, and based on another sort of forgotten curio from the real weird America, which was the writings of Gene Shepard. It's based on his memoir and his obsession with this BB gun that he wanted. And that is just hands down for me, the great Christmas movie.
0: Wait, before we go, though, Ashley... What is your favorite storyline from Love, Actually?
1: Oh, it's the love story between Bill Nye's character, the aging rock star, and his long-suffering manager, of course.
0: That's such a
2: wonderful vignette or storyline. Actually, I'm sorry we didn't talk about that. Bill Nye's character of Billy Mack and his sort of Christmas song, which actually does appear in other moments of the film. People are either seeing it on television or listening to the song on the radio. But his performance, oh, you're right, is just is sublime.
0: Well, he gets some of the best lines when he just appeals to people's sort of cynicism and he says with his optimism, like, wouldn't it be great for your old Uncle Billy? It just turns the whole convention on its head and which is what the film does, you know?
2: Yes, exactly. It's amazing. It's really Inspired, and I would just watch it for him alone. And Ashley, you're right, it's that sort of unappreciated manager. Fantastic.
1: Well, one of the things I love about the movie is that it does provide so many pictures of what love looks like right the more predictable romantic comedy tropes are in there but you also have all of these sidebar stories about these intimate relationships between others and in many ways of all the films that have been made about love this one gives among the more complete pictures of what that can look like which is again i think what's so revolutionary about richard curtis's work here
2: true yes exactly yeah well said I'm so happy to hear that you like the Billy Mac section. I mean, I think I've memorized it may be shit, but it's also solid gold, you know? I
1: I feel that way about so much of my own work. (laughs) We all have that
0: embroidered pillow on our couch somewhere.
2: That would be nice to give someone for Christmas, actually, to have it stitched on a throat pillow. It can't be solid gold if it's shit.
0: Well, now I know what to get
2: you for next Christmas, Michael. Or for Easter. Yes, okay, sorry about that. And also, there is one storyline That has not aged well. And even Richard, I think, is of two minds about it. Do you know which one I'm talking about? It's when Kira Knightley's character.
0: Yeah, and should we tell her boyfriend, right?
2: Yes, that's right. And Andrew Lincoln's character, I think his name is Mark, she's kind of baffled why he's kind of ignoring her. And the truth is because he's kind of in love with her and he shows up at her door on Christmas Eve and declares his love for her
0: surreptitiously.
2: And he's standing there with these with placards in a scene that Richard Curtis said he stole from the opening of D.A. Pennyberg Baker's movie, Don't Look Back, where Bob Dylan is. Remember that scene where he's throwing the cue cards, as it were, down on the Ground while Allen Ginsberg is praying in the background somewhere on an ashcan. Curtis is a huge fan of that film anyway, and of D.A. Pennybaker's work. And in fact, when Emma Thompson was interviewed by a journalist for about this film at some point, this was many years later, she was asked, What do you think about the stalker scene? And she said, There are no stalkers in Love, actually. And but that's how. That scene, the wedding parties being over, scene strikes people now.
0: Ah, uh, people.
2: People who need people. That's something that sort of has not aged particularly well. But you know, what can you do? Things, not everything.
0: But you know, Sam, every relationship, nothing ever ages 100% well. But for a movie about relationships, I would say it's 98% good. True,
2: absolutely, yeah.
0: Sam, this has been fantastic. All I'd say is, Sam, I feel it in my fingers and I feel it in my bones. <laughs> There's something very good here. That's all I'm going to say.
2: Really? Okay. I'll take your word for it. Thank you both. And Merry Christmas.
1: Thank you, Sam. Talk to you soon. Happy holidays. Yep.
0: Bye-bye. You know where there is no love right now? Where there's a little love lost, Ashley?
1: In discourse?
0: (laughs) Over in London. Ah. Boris Johnson's favorite little club, which was started in 1831 called the Garrick, and Joseph Balmore has some very fun reporting about the scandal that's boiling up there at this Private club, which, oh, just happens to be for men only, right?
1: I'm so sick of this. All right, I didn't even read this story because of that. So just tell me about it, Michael, so I don't have to delve into this world any further.
0: All right. So this club started in 1831. London is riddled with these kinds of places. And it's one of the few remaining. men-only clubs. The trouble for them started about a year and a half, 15 months ago, when a woman named Emily Bendel, a lingerie entrepreneur, learned that her application to the club had been rejected. And as I said, it's one of the last institutions left in London that does not accept women as members. Well, Boris Johnson is a member, other people of power, men of power, and it's kind of set off this campaign of really 2021 slash 2022. And we're still going to have places that don't admit women. So Joseph Bulmore did a little sort of report on the drama unfolding inside the club and outside the club as these members sort of fight to hold on to their right to basically be crusty old crustaceans.
1: All right. Thank you. Can we move on now? Sure. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a downer. I just feel like London's one of those towns that has like The per capita person to club ratio, it's like, there's got to be like one club for every five citizens of London. And that includes children and infants, by the way. So... I don't know. It's a funny esoteric world. I do enjoy good old fashioned cocktail at Maison Estelle if anybody wants to invite me the next time I'm in town, but it's absolutely ridiculous. Like so many things happening right now in the Boris Johnson cabinet these days. Yeah. Did you hear that he just had another child?
0: Yeah. And my favorite detail is when it was reported as I read it in the Guardian, it's like his sixth, but possibly seventh child. And basically he's never really admitted how many children he has because some are not, I guess, officially acknowledged. Like, six, possibly seventh.
1: It's so confusing. It's like, this guy's making Mick Jagger look restrained.
0: Don't you want to conserve a little energy at this point?
1: I'm like, seriously, how do you have time for this? Seven kids? Six kids? I mean, who knows how many there could possibly be? Anyway, I don't want to get into this because I know some people like Boris Johnson. I don't happen to be one of them, although I do find him entertaining. But it's a little absurd. And it's like, you don't have any other problems. Like, like It's like, Boris, you don't have enough problems. Like, now you're going to be up all night with a wailing infant, like, as, as the country is in Full-on meltdown mode, but whatever.
0: Yeah, but don't forget, he and his wife had that. Remember that screaming match at the apartment, where the wine bottles broke in on the computer before he took office. But so maybe a man who likes a little drama in his life, a little, a little likes to have the crockery being broken every now and then.
1: He keeps things interesting, right? He's definitely that type. The one person I'd love. I mean, there are a lot of people whose opinions on Bojo and Brexit I find totally fascinating. But Graydon reminds us this week that there's one thinker who has unfortunately departed us 10 years ago, Christopher Hitchens. Like I think all of us would love to know what Hitchens makes of all of this. And Graydon reminds us in his View From Here column this week that this is the 10th anniversary, this month marks the 10th anniversary of Hitchens' death. And there's never been anyone like him and there hasn't been anyone like him since and how acutely he's missed, which I thought this was so fascinating. Graydon talks about how he's so curious about where Hitchens would come down sort of in the culture wars, right, in terms of what's happening now. And Graydon's not sure what side he would be on, the liberal left or the reactionary right.
0: If you've never read Hitch 22, Christopher's memoir, pick it up it's a lovely beautiful provocative in the best sense of a word of a memoir it's a great introduction to him if you've never really known much about him and it's a great if you know a lot about him and you want to know more it's a great completion
1: all right michael well thank you all for joining us wishing you very happy holidays we will toast you with eggnog and spirit and we'd like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor for this episode david Yerman. Make sure to check out their full collection of incredible gift ideas at davidyerman.com. And Michael, on that note, please, please read us out. Ho, ho, ho. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes.
0: Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputators are Nathan King, Julia Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting, In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us and thank you to our sponsor, David Yerman.